We're in Judges chapter 12. It's the Old Testament, but I want to begin this morning from the New Testament, from Luke chapter 24, verses 25 and 27. Jesus is speaking. It was after he had risen from the dead but had not yet gone back to heaven, and he's walking along the road unbeknownst to a couple of his followers. And they're clueless as to the fact that they are walking with the risen Son of God. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory, even as close as they had been to Jesus and all the things that he had told him before his crucifixion? Here they are now, lamenting the fact that their hope was now dead, so they thought. Then beginning with Moses, that means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, the Nevi'im and the Katuvim, the writings and the prophets in the Old Testament, beginning with those, he explained to them the things concerning him in all the scriptures. Not just the New Testament. Not just the red letters of the Gospels. But everything in the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word of God. We're in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. We have been for some time. We're working our way through it. And Judges recounts the dismal failings of God's people. And it recounts the woeful consequences of those failings. And yet God's faithfulness to provide a deliverer from those consequences. And yet that deliverance was always contingent on God's people returning to the Lord, living like his people once again. The never-ending pattern portrays the reality of every one of God's people through the ages and everyone's desperate need for not a deliverer, small d, but the deliverer, big D. In Judges chapter 12, God has just brought another great victory through one of his temporary or small d deliverers named Jephthah. And just as with the ultimate deliverer Jesus, someone always has something to say with God's way of working through his temporary deliverers, in this case again Jephthah. This is what we read in Judges chapter 12 verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim, which is one of the tribes of Israel, these are God's people, were summoned and they crossed to Zaphon and they said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. (laughs) Good morning to you. Now you might remember that it was this same tribe It was the tribe of Ephraim that previously in this book of Judges had heartburn with another one of God's deliverers, the man Gideon. And you might recall that after Gideon led his troops into battle and God granted Gideon the victory against the Midianites, Ephraim again had something to complain about. We look at Judges chapter 8 by way of review, verse 1, and it says the men of Ephraim said to him, 
to Gideon, what is this thing that you've done to us, not calling us when you went to fight against Midian? And they contended with Gideon vigorously. Now Gideon, even though a judge, even though a deliverer, raised up by God to deliver his people, is nonetheless his own person. What I mean by that is that Gideon has his own temperament. Gideon has his own personality. He has his own strengths, and he has his own weaknesses. And after Gideon defeats the Midianites by God's power, he's confronted by the Ephraimites, and he answers their challenge, but he answers in a manner that is vastly different from the tact that we're going to see Jephthah answers them with. Gideon, you may remember, diffuses the situation with the Ephraimites by flattering them into submission. We read in chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, Gideon says to them, well, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Eviezer? Even the little things that you guys do are so much grander than anything I've ever done and that we've ever done. God has given the leaders of Midian, Orb and Zeb, into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? And the leader of Ephraim says, oh, shucks, quit. Well, no, don't quit, because it really is true. We really are quite awesome. Thank you. And the last verse of that pericope, you got to love that, says that their anger toward him subsided when he said that. Again, it remind us. It's a good verse for politicians, by the way. Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, said Solomon, but a harsh word stirs up anger. It's a good word for every one of us. And that's exactly what Gideon did. Well, here we are now. We're in chapter 12. And those peachy Ephraimites are back at it. And they're back at it with the exact same issue that they had with Gideon. But I want to note that while it's only four chapters later, it's 85 years now that have transpired from Gideon to Jephthah. Gideon defeated the Midianites after which the Ephraimites were squawking, and Jephthah has defeated the Ammonites, and Ephraim is back, as I said, protesting about not being called to come and help him in the battle. It sounds admirable, doesn't it? Well, it's always easy to be heroic and brave after the fact. I'm amused by the condensation of the recorded challenge here. Again, reminding us all that what we have recorded for us in Scripture is exactly what God wanted there. There was nothing omitted that he wanted included there. But it obviously does not include anything and everything that ever transpired in any of the recorded writings. But exactly what we need and what God wants for us is always there. So there's this condensation of the challenge by the Ephraimites to Jephthah. And they state their protest, and without allowing any kind of explanation or rebuttal from Jephthah, they've already determined that they are obviously right in being grossly offended, and they state that they're going to burn Jephthah's house down. It's truly amazing how 
good the human species is justifying one's anger and actions in the absence of any rebuttal. Another great proverb from Solomon says, Every man's way seems right until another comes and presents their case. Remember Jephthah, though. Jephthah was clearly raised up by God, as Gideon was. But Jephthah, again, is his own man, as Gideon was. Jephthah has his own temperament, his own strengths and weaknesses, his own personality. When God anoints a leader or commissions somebody to do his work, God does not override the essence of the person which God created. He doesn't automatically decide, okay, I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use you, and then he transforms us and makes us into these divine clones of what the perfect person would be for the task at hand. That's the amazing thing about an amazing God, is that rather he uses the person that he wishes sometimes because of their uniqueness, sometimes in spite of their uniqueness. Think about the differences between Paul and Barnabas in the New Testament. Paul and Barnabas did not get along. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they didn't have a whole lot of use for each other. In fact, they ended up parting ways. Think about the differences between Peter, a fisherman, and all that that means in the day. They were gruff, they were uneducated, they were were basically foul-mouthed sailor types. Airborne infantry, day, everywhere. And then you have Luke, who was a physician, educated, articulate. God uses them both, and he used them both and all of us to do eternally significant work. Gideon deals with the brash, the demanding, and the unreasonable Ephraimites, with attaboys and way to goes, and you guys rock it, and you are awesome. When Jephthah inquired of the leader of the Ammonites as to why they were poised for war, this goes back a few weeks, their leader gives his answer. And the leader of the Ammonites is convinced enough, and again, in his view, oh, of course, I'm right, before he hears anything else, he's convinced enough to commit thousands of his men to war. But how did Jephthah respond to that? Like Gideon, with a soft and gentle answer? No, the nature of Jephthah's explanation to the Ephraimites now is just like it was to the leader of the Ammonites. That is, Jephthah now, Jephthah presents a rational, logical, factual, and by default, truthful rebuttal. And the wretched reality of truthfulness is that sometimes truth is confrontational. Ephraim says, you went into battle and you had this great conquest and you didn't even bother with letting us be apart. The exact same complaint with Gideon. But remember, Jephthah has a great memory. Jephthah says, really? That's the way you remember it, huh? Well, you have a bad memory, so let me refresh it for you. Verses 2 and 3 of Judges 12. Jephthah says to them, I and my people were at great strife with the sons of Ammon. When I called you, 
you did not deliver me from their hand. When I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Let me interpret Jephthah's answer. He gives it in three parts. First, my concern was not with you or your feelings. My concern was with the defeat of an attacking army. Get over yourself. Second, we've been oppressed by the pesky Ammonites for 18 years. Where were you this whole time? Number three, we sent out a recruitment plea to all the tribes, Ephraim. And guess who we never heard from? (laughs) So again, remind you, it's been 85 years since the very similar Gideon episode which would be, I would just put that in terms of basically two generations. Two generations have come of age since the Gideon episode. And yet we see a cyclical repetition of what I will call poor collective behavior. Behavior that has not changed on the part of the tribe of Ephraim in 85 years. Now why is that? Well, why should poor behavior change just because time has passed? And parents, I want you to think about your family as a microcosm of the collective whole, of whatever that whole may be. Why should we expect that a deficiency in one's character will somehow just evolve to a higher level of morality because time has passed. So again, parents, if you think that your children and whatever their nice little sinful acting out happens to be is just a phase that they're going to outgrow, they will not. It's just not our natures, which is why God gave you to them. Unless we are moral Darwinists, meaning we naturally evolve somehow over the course of time, becoming better and better people, making better and better choices, there is no expected change in behavior, either at a collective level or, again, at a personal level. Nothing has changed with the basic MO, or the modus operandi, the way of doing things of the tribe of Ephraim in decades. There's been no spirit-filled leader to guide the populace of the tribe into a more godlike character and into a more godlike culture. So 85 years later, and it doesn't matter if it's 85 years or 850 years later, if there is no influence over the people for good, as God defines good, you should only expect, at best, more of the same, and generally worse. If only Americans would get this when they go into the voting booth. And now Jephthah, 85 years later, has to deal with it. Gideon placated the Ephraimites. Jephthah plans 
to eradicate the Ephraimites. <laughs> Verse 4. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought Ephraim, and the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, O Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and in the midst of Manasseh. Now this verse seems like, again, another kind of weird intrusion. And it seems minor in detail in this narrative. But again, nothing is there that God doesn't want there. Well, what's happening here in verse 4 is that the Ephraimites were taunting the Gileadites. They were taunting them. They were insulting them. They were basically name-calling. They were ridiculing them for essentially being crowd uh, cowards. The accusation is, is that you guys are cowards and you're renegades who ran to the other side of the Jordan to escape being part of us and including us Ephraim. Again, back to that whole self-centered mindset that everything is about me and revolves around me. Not only was this not true, but the land on the east side of the Jordan, where they were from, had been given to them by God when God delineated the tribal lands for his people. So you see, Ephraim was not simply insulting Jephthah, He was blaspheming the Lord God on high. So universal principle number 123. When evil people refuse to accept logical, factual reason, they tend toward violent responses because they cannot deal with the truth. This is also called the Jack Nicholson axiom. You can't handle the truth. Never mind. We see this at a national level in the highest places of leadership. We see this at the state level, at the highest levels of leadership. We see this at the church level, wherever human beings have any kind of interplay. We see this at the family level, where spouses or children react with great anger when approached with the truth. And unfortunately, it's an effective tactic. It's an effective tactic for deflecting the real issue at hand. There's just a little bonus point here too. No extra charge, a tip-off about human behavior. The angrier someone is in any response to a question, the closer to the truth is the question, more than likely. Watch Jay Carney sometime in his press conferences. Hmm, Did I say that? If this pattern of behavior and communication in your home is the way it is, for your sake, do not simply ignore it and do not accommodate it. So Jephthah, unlike Gideon, resorts to war with the Ephraimites, verses 5 and 6. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, Say now the word 
Shibboleth. But he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and they slew him at the fords of the Jordan, and thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. This was no small skirmish. The shibboleth is still used in our culture today. You will hear people in the media referring to it. You will hear normal people (laughs) referring to it. It occurs in religious and secular context. And the shibboleth is designed to pigeonhole someone as it's used today, belonging to a specific group or party or religion or to a particular ideological persuasion. Let me just give you a really low-level example. Um, If I were to say to one of our teenagers, do you type or text? I'm assuming that they, you know, kind of text. Now, as we go down the timeline, maybe they know what typing is. But as we go down the timeline, I assure you, just like, you know, hey, why don't you dial me on the phone? What? What? I don't know. I've got the newest zippy iPhone. I don't, there's no dial. What are you talking about? And like typing and texting. I still, I, I'm always conflicted, right? Talk about really big things to be concerned about. Am I texting someone right now or am I typing? I, I don't know. It's, it, you know, I'm hitting letters. It's, but what it does is, as a shibboleth, you see, it, it lets you know, or at least can, again, this isn't the greatest example, but it lets you know what era that individual belongs to. My natural thing is to talk about what I do even on my word processor on my computer is I I almost never say, well, I'm word processing today. I say, I got to type out a letter or I got to type out an article or something. It's a shibboleth. It it, right away, it lets you know, it gives you some kind of, of hint, maybe accurately, maybe not accurately as to what group a person belongs to. And that's the way this word was used, because for whatever reasons, right, there are linguistic peculiarities even in the world today. Some of you in here, I'm willing to bet, cannot roll your R's, right? When I was uh, taking Russian back in junior high and in high school, I used to just get (laughs) such a kick out of the poor imitation of certain kids in the class when they were trying to imitate what the, the teacher was teaching us. You know, instead of Zdrasvitya, which is hello, I remember this one kid, his Russian name, we all had Russian names, was Ivan. And a teacher would go, you know, which means repeat after me, and he would say, Sturdastrikya. And the teacher would go, Zdrasvitya. And he'd go, Sturdastrikya. And it, I mean, it's, it's just, you know, it just, <clears throat> the rolled R's aren't coming there, and just it's just not happening. They couldn't say their S-H. And so they'd go, oh, really? You're of that? Well, say shibboleth. Sibboleth. Liar. (laughs) Done. All right. Probably more than you ever wanted to know about a shibboleth. Whoa. Yes, it is. And more than I should have explained. Oh, how do I close this out?
Ephraim ends up. I mean, think about what Jephthah just went through, a major battle with the Ammonites. And now within God's people, there's another battle that took, all we know of anyway, or the Ephraimites, 42,000 lives, and it's God's people warring with God's people. Again, another pattern that will carry out through the history of the Old Testament and also church history. Think of the writings of the Apostle Paul. The bulk of his writings are to the churches that wear Jesus' name with some kind of rebuke, some kind of chastisement, some kind of correction or warning to get their act together and stop fighting amongst themselves so that the work of Christ can get done. The body of Christ, as we are called, means we are the body, we are the physical representation today of Jesus Christ on earth, at least we're supposed to be. More often than not, we are unrecognizable as the body of Jesus, thinking about all Jesus was. So again, on that road to Emmaus, when Jesus said, beginning with the Katuvim, the Navaim, the Tohorot, he began to explain to them everything about himself in the Word of God. They testify of who Jesus is. Let me have you stand. Again, everything is abbreviated this morning because of the men's ministries that takes place as soon as I dismiss all the ladies. And again, we'll ask the men to hang around for about 10 to 12 to 15 minutes at the most. And we'll pick up next week where we left off. Father in heaven, thank you for sending the deliverer, the perfect one, the one without flaws of character or temperament. And I pray, O oh God, that everyone would put their hand squarely in your hand. For we know that once we do, you will never let go. And Father, I do pray this morning for Bruce Poliquin stepping out, O oh God, to represent people of this state in the highest places of decision-making in our nation. Lord, how we need people like Bruce of his character and nature, God-fearing, God-loving leaders who will call this country back to you. For apart from that, we are undone. Pour your mercy and grace out upon us, we pray in your name. Amen.